0: Hi, everyone. I am Neda Fatima, and I'm back with another exciting episode for AO North America podcast. So today we have an honor to be with a very respectable lawyer who recently gave his perspective in our spine complication course. So let's welcome Tim Linkus in our show. And um, Tim, I'm really thankful to you for giving us some time. And today, we will be seeking some legal perspective with respect to robotic surgery from Tim. So, how are you doing, Tim, today?
1: I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me, Nada.
0: So, our, we will start from our first question, which would be: So, you know, with respect to robotic surgery itself, so with an exponential increase in the use of robot amongst spine surgeons. Um, what are the legal issues that the lawyers are being more sought after compared to just a conservative open surgery? And um, we would really love to learn more about your perspective for, for, this, uh, for this legal issue.
1: I could probably talk on this very specifically because I've had so many cases of uh, robotic surgery over the years. But kind of interesting that is what we've seen is that when new procedures come out, there is an increase, a spike in lawsuits related to those procedures. That's just historically been the case. And with the advent of robotic procedures, that's been no exception. So we have seen quite a few uh, claims and uh, things that doctors have to worry about, and they're really interesting. So they, they really begin, and I'll build from a foundation and work up. Please interrupt me anytime you wanna ask a specific question because I could talk forever, you know? Sure. Um, So, what we see to begin with is the actual training process itself, and that is getting litigated quite heavily. So, what we'll see is, for instance, uh, one surgeon will be responsible for proctoring another surgeon. And frequently in busy hospitals and things of that nature, what we'll see is sometimes the proctoring surgeon is not in the same specialty as the trainee surgeon. And so the proctoring surgeon needs to have experience and training him or herself in the particular surgery being uh, performed where they're proctoring. It's it's amazing. You think, well, of course, but quite frequently we have seen proctors who are not in that specialty, have never performed this procedure being proctored. You know, but they're the proctor, so that gets litigated, and you don't want to be faced with a situation, especially if you're the trainee. Hey, you have a proctor. And this proctor has never performed this surgery before. Why didn't you question that? You know, And that's something for hospitals to be aware of as well. And then we, we move into the next aspect, which is the type of training that someone receives. So you, you, as well as I know, that the manufacturers set forth certain guidelines for them to say, OK, we believe you're proficient at using our robot in surgery. The question becomes, do hospitals require more training than that, or are they satisfied with what the manufacturer requires? And what I see, by and large, at these busy institutions, they say, we're good. If, if the manufacturer is good with my surgeon going forward, I'm good. But really, from a, from a risk management standpoint, there needs to be more thought process there on behalf of the administration. You know, what happens if it's just five surgeries? Okay, well, five surgeries went by, you did a pretty good job, we're gonna turn you loose on your own. Is that sufficient for your hospital? Or would you like to see more? Because certainly institutions and even surgeons themselves can put additional requirements on themselves, okay? And we see lawsuits come out of that saying, well, gee, this was the seventh time you had ever used the robot and the only the second time you'd ever been proctor, done it without proctoring. Well, that's really tough situation right now because the jury's going to, it doesn't matter whether you think the surgery went well or not, a jury's going to look at that as a newbie, right? Sure. And it also goes along with informed consent. I always say that informed consent cases are usually garbage cases against physicians <laughs> because the, the patient's consenting to possible death. I mean, of course they're going to consent, but... What obligation does a surgeon have to tell her patient, hey, this is only my second robotic surgery that I've performed without Proctor? Mm-hmm. Or a patient, I want to know that. I want yeah. to know that. And physicians, and especially surgeons, it seems are reluctant to disclose that to their patients. There needs to be a comfort level with your patient and what you feel like you should disclose versus what you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And the state is different. And I know this podcast will probably, odd. Yeah. So some states have what's called an objective standard, sure. ha- or some states have a, a standard that's a subjective, and some states have a mixed. And what you need to know is you need to know what your state requires in an informed consent setting for a surgery, okay? Sure. So that's one type of lawsuit. Now, obviously, the outcome of surgery drive lawsuits, so if you experience a complication or there's an untoward outcome, then you're gonna see a rise in lawsuit. They're gonna be investigated. Lawyers are gonna be looking at that. The more complex the surgery, the more chance of complications, the more chances of lawsuits. So they're gonna go through this, this checklist that I'm going down through saying, okay, what was the training like for the surgeon? How many of these procedures had the surgeon done? Who was training the surgeon? Uh, where was the training done? That sort of thing. and. We also know with robotic surgery that the field is expanding fairly rapidly as to the types of surgeries we're doing, right? Yeah, right. If you have primarily used the robot in three or four areas of surgery, and now you're doing it new in a new area, yes, you have—you may have uh, 50 surgeries under your belt in those three or four areas, but this is the first time you've done it in this area. A good lawyer can, can pin you to the wall with something like that. So, You need to make sure that you're comfortable moving forward in that. Got it. And then we see uh, another aspect of that is remedial programs. The things that that is um, surprising to someone like me as a lawyer handling cases is when we see residents, um, fellows in training who gee, it looks like their skill is not quite there. Sometimes programs are quick to graduate them, and get them out of their own hands and put them in someone else's. I think that's a mistake. And when a resident or a fellow has technical issues, I think they need to be put in a remedial program, not just to avoid lawsuits, but for patient safety and patient care issues. With robotics, we are going from open surgeries where we have tactile feel and we're able to do these things, to completely loss of tactile feel and, and really a new joystick, if you will, from when I was a kid doing uh, video games. And so this is, this is new. And when a resident or a fellow may be excellent in an open surgery, but we now move someone to robotics and they're having difficulty, or perhaps they're a surgeon who's been operating for 20 years and they're not used to the video game aspect of it, what, what remedial programs are we doing that after five times, we say, gee, there just seems to be a little bit something missing for this surgeon. So that's an aspect that lawyers are looking at, you know, and this is an opportunity for um, lawyers who are suing physicians to get information they don't normally get in lawsuits. So if, if I were suing physician A for malpractice, I generally can't get their credentialing file. Those are peer review protected. But if you've gone through a training program, and the training is your uh, operation on five, six, seven patients to complete the program, that's not really part of your credentialing. That's part of training. And now I can get your complications from that, your complication rate, how the outcomes of the surgery, the return to hospital, and I can use that in a lawsuit. So am I talking too much now?
0: I know um, I really appreciate it, Tim, because this is very important to understand from the legal perspective, what happens if a person is not fully trained and how credentials can really help from from the legal perspective. I really appreciate it. So there is another question that arises from this conversation and uh, which is with respect to the malpractice itself. So how do you see the future of malpractice? Uh, With respect to the robotic surgeries and now there are some companies that they're saying that we will bring full automation. So, who will be held responsible in those cases, so now there are no trainees, there are no completely practicing physicians, so who will be responsible in those cases?
1: So, I, I love how fast society has moved with technological advances. Yeah. We are, we're moving at a light speed and, you know, our iPhones have video capability better than professionals now. But you know what? The one thing that's interesting in medicine and in surgery in particular, that these technological advances, I think, are moving appropriately slow. So when we think of automation in medicine, for instance, where can we point to an automated um, computer robotic item? that is successful in medicine. I can point to labs. We used to look under a microscope and look at white blood cell counts, red blood cell counts, whatever, and count them manually. Now a computer does that, right? Yeah. But let's look at radiographs. We've had, we've had computer readed, pardon me, computer read radiographs for 20, 30 years, and it still doesn't do it right. Okay. We've had computer generated readouts of ECGs and they still don't do it right. We now have computer-generated fetal heart tone monitor strips, and they don't do it right. I am concerned about moving to fully automated surgeries, and I do know that they're out there and they're, they're developing this now, but every surgeon knows that when you encounter a physician, or pardon me, a patient, that patient is unique. The anatomy is unique. What you see on the inside is unique. You can have all kinds of variations of vasculature and that sort of thing. So having a computer robot perform surgery, I think is going to be problematic. But frankly, I don't know how they're going to do the controlled studies to get it there because I'm not going to be your guinea pig, right? I want NIDA doing my surgery. So, but once we get there, yeah, there's going to be a new target of malpractice lawsuits.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would assume but don't know, I would assume there would still be a supervising physician of some sort in case there is a complication because no computer is going to be able to handle a complication during my lifetime. Yeah. Um, there will be techs involved, obviously. Yeah. You're going to have new targets in the uh, manufacturers who do this because if a manufacturer puts out a robot, uh-huh. that claim is capable of fully performing a surgery and it has a complication. Now the manufacturer is going to get sued. Then you're gonna have the computer programmers and they're gonna look behind the program itself to see if there was an error in programming. So we're gonna have a whole new set of experts, separate and apart from medicine. We're gonna have biomedical uh, engineers. We're gonna have computer uh, software designers, all as experts in these malpractice cases. It's gonna be interesting is to see whether or not our laws in our individual states on malpractice claims apply to manufacturers and software developers.
0: Thank you so much, Tim, for this valuable information. Um, So I hope everyone has enjoyed this discussion and I will be back with another exciting episode next time. Meanwhile, you can find us on our different platforms, which include Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and Google. So stay tuned. Thank you so much again.